We're going to continue our series looking, going through the book of, or the, the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. So I want to invite you to open there, Hebrews chapter 11 tonight. We're going to jump right in uh, to this because we, the, the subject that gets brought up in the, the text uh, tonight is a rather extensive subject. And it deals with the relationship between the church and the state. And so we're going to be looking at this issue uh, tonight. And this is an issue that there's a lot of confusion over. And as soon as we read our verse tonight, we're looking at one verse. As soon as we read it, you'll, you'll immediately understand why this is the, the subject of, of tonight's uh, uh, sermon, if you will. And so Hebrews chapter 11 and then... We're going to go immediately to Exodus chapter 1 after that, and then we're going to start uh, looking uh, around the Bible and uh, establishing some things from the Word of God. But before we uh, read, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your Word. Lord, I thank you for each person that is here today. Lord, I pray that your Word, your truth, the truth, would bear good fruit in our lives uh, this evening. Lord, I pray especially that you would help me uh, tonight to uh, communicate faithfully what your word teaches. Lord, that you would guard me from error and guard me from speaking in the flesh. Uh, Lord, but that you would help me to be led by your spirit uh, as we examine your word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. So, Hebrews chapter 11. And last week we looked at the faith of Joseph. And we saw how when he came to the end of his life that he made this request by faith that when uh, the Israelites were, were led out of Egypt, uh, though they had come to Egypt for salvation to be saved from the famine, that in the, the future they would be given the land that God had promised them. And so Joseph requested, when you go to that promised land, take me with you, take my bones with you. And then the author of Hebrews 11, he, he jumps forward now to uh, Moses. And so the time of the deliverance of God's people. And so in verse 23 of Hebrews 11, as we're walking through this chapter together, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict or order. Now, again, he doesn't go into detail about what this king's edict was and, and why they were having to hide their baby. He's writing to the Hebrews, and the Hebrews would have already known the context of, of this story, and, and you may know it as well, but I think it would be good uh, to refresh ourselves on that. And so if you'll flip back with me, to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 1, it, it tells us the story of what the writer of Hebrews is writing about. And, and again, he is commending Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, for what they did as they saved their son by hiding him for three months. Now, in Exodus chapter 1, it says in verse 8 that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so remember, Joseph had been used by God to deliver not only God's people, but also the Egyptian people. 
and had been given a very prominent place within the nation. And the Israelites had been given the land of Goshen, a a very wonderful land within Egypt to uh, raise their family and their their land or, or, or use that land to raise their livestock and their family. But now a new king has come to power who doesn't know Joseph, who doesn't remember Joseph, who who doesn't know what Joseph and and the children of Israel, the blessing that they've been to the people of Egypt. And in verse 9, he says to his people, behold, the children of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. They had grown, they had multiplied, though they had been about 70 people when they got there, God had multiplied them immensely in the 430 years that they were there, uh, to the point where they are close now to 2 million people. And you say, well, how in the world could 70 people turn into uh, 2 million? Well, uh, there's a whole lot of loving going on, uh, is what's going on there. Uh, God said to be fruitful and multiply, and and they were being obedient to that. Uh, But it wouldn't take uh, that many Uh, children by that day and age's standards, uh, and people in that time were still living longer for that that to happen. It's absolutely plausible. I think I did the math one time, and for there to be two million people, uh, you had to average about eight children per family. Uh, So while that is a lot by today's standards, uh, by previous generation standards, that's, there's not, that, that's not, exceptional. Uh, Heather's great-grandmother had 14 children. Is that right? 14? 12? Nine? Well, nine. Okay. So she was right on par. I don't know. You've heard that preachers exaggerate? Well, there you go. There's an example of uh, a preacher exaggeration. Uh, Nevertheless, it would be about eight children per average per family. Now, I can tell you, as someone who lives in a, a community that is very close to a synagogue, our community is filled with Jewish families. Uh, they have very big families. They have lots and lots of kids. Uh, so it is absolutely plausible uh, for this to happen in the span of 430 years. So the Pharaoh looks out and he says, the, the children of Israel have multiplied. There are too many. Let us deal, verse 10, he says, shrewdly with them and lest they continue to multiply and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them. They enslaved them. They declared, if you're an Israelite, you are from this point forward a slave to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities Verse 12, but the more that they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied and the more that they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, thinking, you know, if they spend all their time working, they won't have time for multiplying. Nevertheless, God continued to bless them and to multiply them and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and with all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, so those who would help deliver the Hebrew babies, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives, I knew my kids were going to laugh when I read that. I just absolutely knew it. 
When you see, when, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. This is what is called today partial birth abortion. You deliver a baby halfway and then you murder it as it's being delivered, which is in some states today, even legal in our country, legal. If you see that he is a boy, you shall kill him. But if he is a daughter, he shall, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. So, so you have the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, giving a law, giving an order. This is what you must do. But the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. He blessed them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. So this, is, this isn't working. So he establishes a new law. Here's his new law. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. So the new law of the land is, if you see a young Hebrew a baby Hebrew boy, you are obliged to go and rip that baby from his mother's arms and cast him into the Nile River. That was the law of the land in Egypt. Now into verse uh, chapter 2, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that, she, that he was fine, a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, this is what our passage is talking about in Hebrews chapter 11. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it uh, with bitumen, bitumen and pitch. She, she, she made it uh, watertight. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, what could cause a mother? What could cause a mother to put her child into a little basket that would float and to set it free on a river? What would cause a, a mother to do that? It's, it's, it's the only hope that she has that her child will survive. Because if she keeps the child, it will be caught and thrown into the river. And so she decides, I will at least put him in God's hands. I will at least let the child have a chance and let God have a chance to intervene in this situation. She trusts in the providential hand of God. But I want you to see that there is no way a mother would do this unless it was her last resort, 
And what this tells me is that what the Pharaoh said was to happen was actually happening. That they were taking little babies and they were throwing them into the river. And so she sets the child off and his sister stands at a distance to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. This is the providential hand of God. And while her young woman walked beside her in the river, she saw a basket in the reeds and she went and sent her servant and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his, sis, then, then his sister, Miriam, said to her, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for, me, for you from one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. She, you know, Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mom to come and nurse her baby, being paid for by, in, in the employment now of Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh, to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses sounds like for the Hebrew word, sounds like the Hebrew word to draw out. So what's going on here? Well, in the most broadest of terms, you have parents who are living under an evil regime whom, who the government of their day has declared that it is now illegal to have male children and they conceive and bear a male child and they choose to disobey the law of the land. They choose to disobey the king's order and instead they choose to, in faith, obey God. By hiding the child. And when they can no longer hide the child, they put the child into God's hands. And now some thousands of years later, in the book of Hebrews, as, as, as the writer of Hebrews is commending people for their faith in God. And remember we talked about that faith in God manifests in obedience to God and his word despite the circumstances or the consequences. And now Moses' parents are commended by God for their faith and they are commended for their disobedience of the government. They disobeyed the government and they are commended by God for doing so. And so this presents to us an interesting question about the relationship between God's people, which the Old Testament saints were in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people, the, the, the God's chosen people, and now uh, Jew and Gentile worshiping God together in the church, the church now God's people, the relationship that exists between the church and the state. And so I want to walk uh, for, through with you five principles that we need to understand as God's people. Amen. How many of you are part of God's church? You're part of God's people tonight. So, so what it, nevertheless, we still live 
in, in uh, a, the natural world and, and there are governing authorities in our lives. And so what is our relationship as God's people to the government, to the state? Number one, the first principle we need to understand is there is only one sovereign. There is only one who is sovereign and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who is sovereign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He declared that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given unto him. That is past tense. So all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus rules and reigns now seated in heaven. Paul says in Ephesians, seated far above every principality, every power, every ruler in authority. Jesus rules as sovereign over all. There's only one sovereign Lord. It is our Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the first principle we need to understand. The buck stops with him. There's no name that is higher than his name. There's no authority or power that is higher than his authority and his power. It is Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to understand, the second principle, is that our sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ, has established three, three governments in the world. Three governments. Our sovereign Lord has established three governments that report directly to him as sovereign. Now I'm using the term government. My definition for government is an institution established by God with limited authority in a specific sphere of influence. A government is an institution established by God with a limited set of authority in a specific sphere of influence. And I believe from the Bible, we can see that God has established three governments. The three governments God has established are the church, the family, and the state, the, gov the, the natural government, the, the earthly government, the church, the family, and the state. Now, the church is tasked with the responsibility of the Great Commission, going into all the world, preaching the gospel to every nation, discipling the nation, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. The church is tasked with the responsibility of the Great Commission, the spread of the gospel. The family is tasked with the responsibility of the creation mandate to multiply in the earth to fill the earth and to subdue it, that creation mandate. That has been given to the family, this government that God has established. The creation mandate, we as families have that responsibility. We also have the responsibility to raise children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. That is the responsibility of a family. To fulfill the creation mandate and to raise our sons and our daughters to love and to serve the Lord. And that brings us to the state. What is the responsibility of the state, this third realm of government? The state is tasked with the responsibility 
of dispensing with justice. Justice. That is the state's responsibility. Now we're going to look at what this justice is in a moment from Romans chapter 13. If you want to go ahead and open to Romans 13, uh, we can do that. We'll look at that here in just a moment, Romans chapter 13. But first I want to say something about the separation that exists between these three forms of government. Especially the separation between the church and the state. The separation that exists between the church and the state is a God-ordained separation. This is a God-ordained separation. We see this in the Old Testament. We see that the Levitical priesthood, which was tasked with the worship of God and the teaching of God's people to follow God's law, the Levitical priesthood was separate from the judges. Those who were to, to, to execute God's law and God's justice. So the Levitical priesthood was separated from those who were to judge over Israel. Now you'll notice in the Old Testament system for God's people that there was no legislative branch. There was nobody writing laws. Why? Well, because God was the lawgiver. God wrote his law. He gave it to the children of Israel. He reinstituted it to them before they went into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy. So in God's system in the Old Testament, you had the Levites, the priests, whose job it was to, to institute the proper worship of God and to teach God's people God's law. And then you had judges who were to judge according to God's law. You have nobody writing the law because God had written his law and give it to the, given it to them at Mount Sinai. Now when we come in, so, so we see this separation. Again, I'm talking about the separation between the church and the state. This is God's design. In the New Testament, Jesus affirms this separation when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus affirms this separation between the church and the state. And so though the, the the church and the state are separate, what we need to understand is that neither of them are sovereign in and among themselves, but they are both responsible to God. God sits over the church, the state, and the family. The state is not sovereign unto itself. The state is responsible to God. And the, the state has no authority over the church, period. Not because of the Constitution, but because of God Almighty. Though we in our Constitution, in our First Amendment, it says that the, the, the state shall not uh, impede on the free exercise of religion or establish a state religion or, or, or impede on free speech. And so though it is written into our Constitution, this separation between uh, the powers of church and state, though our Constitution says that, ultimately it is God's law that stands supreme over all man's laws. And so thankfully we live in a country that recognizes God's law. But even in... Even in countries that do not share our freedoms, 
the state does not have any authority over the church. The state has no right to dictate to God's people how they are to worship the Lord. And any time that the state would be trying to do that, it would be stepping beyond the limited authority that it has that it has been given established by God. Does that make sense? Thank you, the three people that are still listening. All right. There's only one sovereign, Jesus Christ the Lord. The Lord has established three governments, the church, the family, and the state. A government is an institution established by God with limited authority in a specific sphere of influence. So what are the authorities that that God has given to the state? I said it was primarily tasked with the responsibility of dispensing with justice. Well, let's go to God's word now and, and, and see what God's word says about the state. Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So so where does the state draw its authority from? Itself as sovereign? No, God. God, if, if the state has any authority, it has to draw that authority from God. It has been instituted by God. There's no authority except from God. Therefore, it is right that our Pledge of Allegiance should say one nation under God. We're recognizing the sovereign authority of God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now listen to the type, listen to, he now shifts to talk about how a a government under God should rule. These are the marching orders for the state. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive approval. For he, again the state, is God's servant, that's literally the word deacon, that the state who, who executes justice, rewarding what is good and punishing what is evil, is God's deacon, God's servant, for your good, for the flourishing of the citizens. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain." It says that God has given to the state uh, the, the execution of justice to the point of even capital punishment. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, therefore, that, that means in light of this truth, that the state's job is to reward good and punish evil. Therefore, 
One must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. And we all groan. Nevertheless, a government has the right to collect taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Attending to this very thing, pay to pay all to pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now there's a parallel passage, a shorter one, in First Peter. First Peter chapter two. I'm going to read through that one quickly, and then we're going to come back and, and look at some of the language here in, in Romans 13. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. What is the will of God for the state? That they punish evil and reward good. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. So here we see that the, the state is tasked with the responsibility of punishing evil and rewarding good of dispensing with justice. As Amos 5.24 says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. To punish those who do evil, reward those who do good. Now this raises the question, what is justice? What is evil? What is good? Whose justice are we talking about? Justice by what standard? By what standard? God's standard of justice. Where does our standard of justice come from? It can only come from two places. There's only two sources of justice that we could come up with. The first, of course, is God's standard of justice. And as Christians, we vote for that. That's what we're in favor of, God's standard of justice. And his standard of justice flows from his nature and his character. God's law reflects who he is. And therefore it cannot change because he does not change. What has been evil has always been evil and will always be evil because God does not change. What has been true will always be true and has always been true. Because God does not change. So there's God's standard of justice, God's word, God's law. Or the second option, and there's only two options. The second option is that we come up with man's standard of justice. Man's standard of justice. Which, like God's, flows out of man's nature and character. Which the Bible doesn't have a whole lot of favorable things to say about the heart of man. Which is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? 
So we have two options of, of how uh, any people can be governed. They can either be governed by God's standard of justice or man's standard of justice. God's standard has been revealed to us. It is revelation. It does not change. It is not speculation. It is not man's philosophies. It is revelation. Never changes. Always perfect. And we have man's standard, which is simply speculation, which is always changing and ultimately is evil and perverts justice by definition, because if it's not God's law and God's standard, if it's not good, it has to be evil. And so if a nation rejects God governing it through his law, he has to replace that law, that justice, he has to replace that standard with something. And so we live in a nation today that is replacing God's standard and God's definition of justice with their own, with man's standard of justice. You have to, you have to replace it with something. The only other option is humanistic law, which is crooked, which is jaded, which is constantly shifting, is not God's standard. So again, where do we get our definition of good and evil? The, the role of the state is to punish evil and reward good. How do we know what is good and evil? The word of God. The word of God. I will say too that punishing evil and rewarding good for the sake and the safety of its citizens includes protecting its citizens. And I would categorize the maintaining of our border and making it secure, I would file that under protecting its citizens. Amen. The state has the responsibility to make sure that those who enter into its borders have no intention of causing its citizens harm. Amen. Amen. It's the responsibility of the state. It's also the responsibility of the state to maintain an armed defensive force to protect its citizens. So, that's principle number three, that God has given the state a limited set of responsibilities, the promotion of good and the punishment of evil. Now, that moves us to principle number four. Any government, any state that disobeys God's law will come under God's judgment. Any state, any government that disobeys God's law and rule will come under his judgment. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That righteousness is a blessing to any people, but sin is a reproach to all people. That the people rejoice when the righteous are in power, but the people mourn when the wicked take power. 
Any government that disobeys God's law, again, remember that all governments are established by God. He establishes them with the, with the purpose of executing his law and justice. Any government that rebels against God will come under the judgment of God. And we live today in a nation that I believe is coming under the judgment of God because we are perverting justice. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. If that doesn't describe our nation today, I don't know what does. We call evil good and we call good evil. We call light darkness and darkness light. God says, woe to those who do such things. Proverbs 17, 15, acquitting the guilty and condemning the righteous are both detestable to the Lord. Leviticus 19, 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Acquitting the guilty, condemning the righteous, both are an abomination to God. One of the things that I think is very interesting that came out over the last few weeks as the uh, Senate was uh, trying to decide whether or not to affirm the most recent nominee to the Supreme Court was this individual's record on the way she punished uh, child abusers, the way she dispensed justice to pedophiles, and the fact that she was lenient on those who abuse children in the most vile of ways is alarming. It's alarming. And the, the, the argument from the other side was that well, it's not just her that does that, everybody does that. I said, why does that make anything better? Get rid of all these people that are doing that. Give me a break. If anybody does the crimes that were being committed, they should be locked away for the rest of their life. They should be banished from ever being around a child for the rest of their life. You should lock them up and throw away the key. It's not, it, it, again, well, well, people on the other side, they do the same thing. And, and it's like, well, where's God's standard of justice? In all of this conversation, I believe it is an indictment against our nation. Romans chapter 1, I'm gonna, this is uh, the last passage we'll look at tonight, Romans 1, if you want to flip over there with me. Romans 1 describes a nation that has come under the judgment of God. Again, because we have rejected as a nation God's law. Because we are calling evil good and good evil. Because we have removed God from our schools. Because we are indoctrinating children with demonic ideology. 
because we have slaughtered 62 million babies in their mother's womb, because we think that we can redefine marriage, because every month, because every year we dedicate an entire month, the month of June, to celebrating an abomination before God. What do we think is going to happen when we rub our noses in God's face? Verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this is the first step in a nation that is turning away from God. The first step is the suppression of truth. We saw that happen when they kicked God out of public schools. You can't read the Bible anymore. You can't pray anymore. It's the suppression of truth. Verse 19 says, what can be known about God is plain to humanity, to them, because God has shown it to them. Psalm 97.6 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. You can know there is a God. You can know there is a creator just by walking outside and looking up. But men in unrighteousness suppress that truth. Though to understand and know the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, it takes special revelation. It takes someone preaching and proclaiming the gospel. To know that there is a creator, you don't need to hear the gospel. You just need to look around. You just need to wake up. You just need the existence itself presupposes that there is a creator. What else exists without nothing? Nothing. Every, everything that was made was made by someone. There is a creator. That is the truth. And God has shown it to everyone. Therefore, I believe that there is no such thing as an atheist. There are those who are suppressing the truth of God in their heart. And they are trying to suppress it by a lot of different means. But God is displaying his invisible attributes, verse 20. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without an excuse. No one will stand before God on judgment day and say, I didn't know there was a God. God will say, yes, you did. I declared it to you every single day that you were alive. So what is happening? It is people who are unrighteous and ungodly who suppress God's truth. That's the first step. Verse 21, it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking. Listen, when you reject the truth, all you're left to believe is a lie. That's all you can believe. If you're going to reject the truth, all you have left is lies. And if you believe lies, you become futile in your thinking. Your, your thought processes become, they, they malfunction. One of the great things that, that has been said over and over and over again the last two years is that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. That makes no logical sense whatsoever. How many times have you uttered that in the last two years? The inconsistencies, the logical fallacies of all of the mandates and all of the dictates, it doesn't make sense. 
when you reject Christ, who is the bodily personification of the truth, you also reject logic. You reject reason. You, You have no foundation for your life if you reject Christ. If you reject God as creator, there there is no basis in reality left. It says that Jesus in Colossians holds all things together himself. So you become futile in your thinking. That's the next step. You suppress the truth. Next thing that comes is flawed thinking, illogical thinking. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh, the Logos. When you reject Christ, you, you, you have to eventually make war on logic itself. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the next step, the, the darkening of the human heart, as if it was already not dark enough. Those who reject Christ, their minds and their hearts become darkened. Verse 22, the next step is that they claim to be wise. (laughs) They claim to be wise. How many times this last two years have the experts been cited? All the experts. Well, according to the experts, according to the experts. Who are these nameless, faceless experts that get everything wrong all the time? And why are they still experts? And who is still listening to these experts? Well, again, claiming to be wise, they become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, creeping things. The next step is idolatry. Idolatry. Uh, Our nation has made idols out of so many different things. Material possessions, I could go on and on the list of idols that our nation worships. Verse 24, therefore, now now comes the judgment of God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So so the next step, after you reject the truth, your thinking becomes futile, your heart becomes darkened, the next thing up is God gives these people, this people over to the lust of their hearts and into impurity. We, we, we We had this happen in our country. We called it the sexual revolution. That was Romans chapter one. That happened in what, the 60s and 70s? I wasn't around for that, but I've read about it. Where you, you, just, you just abandon all inhibitions, abandon, you, you just do what feels good. If it feels good, do it. God's ethic on sexuality, God's ethic on family, God's ethic on marriage, out the window. The sexual revolution. Well, what comes after that? In verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here because we got kids here. 
The scripture is beautifully veiled. But you know what this is talking about. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for this error. Since they did not know God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. See if this doesn't describe our nation. Malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, God's law, that those who practice such things deserve to die, justice, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the description of a nation that has come under the judgment of God, and this description fits our nation. And unless our nation turns back to God in full-scale repentance, we will be swept from the face of the earth by the righteous hand of God. And so we are like the prophets of old in the days before God brought justice to his people who declare in the land, repent, repent, repent. I believe there is still hope. I believe there's still hope for our nation Why? Because I believe in the goodness of men? No, because I believe in the grace of God. But it starts in the church. It starts in the church. Revival always starts in the church. It starts with God's people becoming so broken over the sin in their nation that they begin to repent and they begin to confess and they begin to turn and they begin to live for God. And not until the church is broken will we see revival in our land. Revival in our land. Our laws of our nation and every law of every nation should reflect God's law because God's law is the only true standard of justice. Our standard of justice should be God's standard of justice. Evildoers should be punished. Those who do good should be rewarded. And it is the state's job to execute God's justice on those who do good and those who do evil. You say, well, what about grace? What about grace for those who have committed evil? Well, I believe in grace. 100%. And if someone will repent of their sin and trust in Christ, 100% they will receive grace and mercy from the throne of God. But it is not the state's job to dish out grace. That's God's job. The state's job is to administer justice, to reward good, and to punish evil by God's standard. By God's standard. I believe our nation and every nation should be a Christian nation. If Jesus is who he said he was, 
If he has the power that he said he has, then every nation on the earth should acknowledge his sovereign power and repent and serve him as Lord. I believe that 100%. Not, not only do I believe that, but that is what is going to happen. In the book of Revelation, it says the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That's where the, where the world is going. The world will be Christian one day. Amen. The gospel is that we should all repent and serve the Lord now. So principle number five, wrapping up here tonight. As Christians, we are obligated to obey God rather than men. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were warned by their governing authorities, you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter said, well, we must obey God rather than men. When the government declares that they can redefine marriage, we resist. We will obey God rather than men. When the government endorses and pays for the slaughter of the unborn, we declare we will obey God rather than men. When schools try to indoctrinate kids in the LGBT propaganda, we resist. And we say we will obey God rather than men. When the White House declares, as it did last week, it's hard to even read this. From the White House podium last week, they said, they declared gender-affirming health care is best practice and life-saving, and that parents and doctors who affirm this care, quote-unquote care, are loving their children. What they're talking about is giving hormone blockers to little kids and giving and, and mutilating their bodies. They say it's a necessary medical treatment that says that saves lives and that it's loving. And we say, no, it's not. No, it's not. There are some Christians today who would say, but they're doctors, they're experts. We, we need to trust the doctors that say that, that kids need this. Listen, friends, it was also doctors who tortured and experimented on the Jews in Auschwitz. Just because you have a DR in front of your name doesn't make you a moral authority on anything. What does God's word say, period? It says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made that we are created in the image of God, that he created us male and female and to sow lies into confusion and to babies and to children to distort what God has made and what God has declared in the beginning good. There's a generation that is being raised today so broken and the church has to be ready to minister God's truth to these broken lives. There is a wave of brokenness, a tsunami. So for the Christian, the ethic is as a general rule, as a general rule, we submit to the state 
as deacons appointed by God, servants appointed by God, who are appointed to punish evil and to reward good. However, when one must choose between obeying the state and obeying God, we obey God. We cannot and will not violate God's law, God's word, or the inner witness of our conscience. As citizens of this country, we have the unique freedom and opportunity to participate in our government. And at the very least, we should as Christians make our voices heard through voting according to God's law and God's word. Therefore, we should vote for candidates that are against the murder of the unborn, against the desecration of marriage, against the indoctrination of children with sexual perversion in schools, we should vote according to God's law, according to God's word. God-fearing Christians should speak for the truth at every opportunity that we have under the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And as led by the Holy Spirit, God-fearing Christians should seek positions of authority within the government, from the local school board to city and state positions to the federal government under the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit. And they should do so without compromising their morals by lying, accepting of bribes, and other unethical means that violate God's word. And we as the church, we must evangelize the lost. We must fulfill the Great Commission. People's hearts are not changed by putting the right laws in place. People's hearts are only changed by the gospel, by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus. We as the church must be about the great commission. And we know, as John chapter 1 says, that the darkness cannot overcome the light. We as God's people must shine the light. And finally, as Christians, we should pray. We should pray. We're instructed in God's word to pray for our leaders. We're instructed in God's word to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to conclude tonight by, by praying. By praying. So I invite you to stand with me tonight. Forgive me for going so long. It's kind of a lengthy topic and we only kind of skimmed along the surface. Certainly a lot more could be said, but we as Christians, we have to recognize that there is a sovereign, there is a supreme, there is a Lord that is above the state and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must obey him. We must obey him. Just like Moses' parents chose to disobey the law to obey God, there may be times in the future where we are called upon and put in such a situation. And by God's strength, I believe we can stand for righteousness even in this wicked day. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you call us to pray for our leaders. So Lord, we lift up our leaders right now before you. Lord, we pray that you would move in their hearts, that you would change their hearts. Lord, we pray for the president of our country, Joe Biden, Lord Jesus, that you would save him. Lord, that you would redeem him. Lord, that you would change his heart. Lord, that you would show him, 
the, 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 the duality of his thinking, the, the logical inconsistencies in his thinking, Lord. Though he professes to be a man of faith, though he professes faith in you, he, he lives in a way that is inconsistent from the faith that he pr- pr- professes. Lord, I pray that, that that faith that he professes, Lord, would grab a hold of his heart. Lord, that he would see you, Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords, and that he would govern righteously, that he would punish evil and reward good, that he would stop the promotion and the funding of the slaughter of children. Lord Jesus, we pray for the the upcoming uh, cases, Lord, that are going to come before the Supreme Court. God, we ask that you would stop this, this horrible holocaust that is happening in our country. Lord, that you sovereignly, God, would would move upon the judges and open their eyes to the truth that a baby is a baby is is alive, that life begins at conception. And Lord, that, that a mother's womb should be the safest place for a child. Lord, that the church would arise and and and, and come alongside and, and and be the hands and feet of Christ. And Lord, that the church would be the, the number one adopting force in the world. And And that if people say they don't want their babies, that we would say we will take them and we will raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Lord, Lord, help us not to just curse the darkness, but help us to to be the light in the world, Lord, that you've you've called us to be. Lord, we pray for, for the vice president. Lord, we pray for the cabinet. Lord, we pray for the Senate and for the House. God, we pray for every state governor and lieutenant governor. Lord, we pray for every state congress. Lord, we pray for righteousness and for justice. Lord, we pray for these leaders that would recognize you as their sovereign and that they would bow the knee to Christ and that they would put into uh, law laws that reflect your law, laws that reflect your righteousness. God, I pray for judges, Lord, who will, who will uphold the law, who, who, will, who will punish evil and, and reward good. Lord, that, that we would not have those who call evil good and good evil. And Lord God, that you would break the heart of the church. Lord, that, that we would not be infiltrated by the evil of our world. But Lord, that you would help us to stand and to stand firm and to stand in faith. Lord, just as Moses' parents did what was right, just as the apostles declared we must obey God rather than men. Lord, that you would put that steel within our spine, that you would give us that boldness to speak out. Lord, that Christians, when we do go and vote, that we would vote for righteousness and we would vote for justice. Lord, not according to man's standard, but according to your standard, which is the only standard. And Lord, we pray for a revival, a revival to sweep our land. Lord, that people would be broken by what's going on. Lord, that people would see the iniquity and see the sin and see, Lord, the flood of debauchery that is sweeping this generation away. And Lord, that their eyes would be open to the truth. And Lord, that we as a nation would turn to you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior and as our Lord. God, we ask humbly for your mercy, for your mercy, oh God, that you would be merciful. I thank you, Lord, that you are a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, that you would show us mercy and that you would pour out your grace. Well, Lord, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And Lord, that we would see the grace of God take effect as, as 
men and women of God take a bold stand preaching and proclaiming and living the message of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Lord, all across this land, Lord, that you would put boldness in the pulpit and that people would preach your gospel with truth and with fire under the anointing of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that grace would grip people's hearts and that people would be birthed from death unto life. Lord, that you would call people out of darkness and into light. And Lord, that you uh, would save our land and bring salvation, Lord, uh, to those in darkness. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.